Hi, I'm Christine. And I'm Alan. We'd like to thank you for tuning in to our discussion this week. Our hope is that we'll share some information that you'll find helpful. So now we invite you to join us as we together listen listen for for the the word. word. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our podcast today. We are um, still walking through Luke, and we're, we're headed with uh, Jesus on this uh, journey towards Jerusalem. And so today, this takes place in Luke 17, verses 11 through 19. So, Alan, why don't you uh, take it away? Thanks, Christy. Yeah, our lesson begins a new section in Luke's travel narrative. Uh, as we mentioned before, for a travel narrative, it doesn't seem like there was much traveling from place to place mentioned in Luke's gospel in this section. But as Jesus nears Jerusalem, not only does the movement of the narrative pick up speed, but I think more importantly, his controversial message, message resurfaces rather pointedly and perhaps in a way intended to provoke his and perhaps also Luke's audience. And we're going to begin to see that with this passage. Mm. So um, obviously, um, um, I think one of the things that when I read this was that this interesting travel between Samaria and Galilee and I'm not exactly sure what's going on. Yeah, well, and that's that's the way it, the passage begins. On the way to Jerusalem, Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee. And, you know, we normally think of Samaria and Galilee as being adjacent. Um, and, in fact, there, were some t- there was a time when some biblical scholars might take this statement, a statement like this, that Jesus was going through the region between Samaria and Galilee as an indication that Luke was not personally familiar with the geography of Palestine. And in fact, Joseph Fitzmaier in his commentary speaks of Luke's geographical ineptitude. Mm -hmm. And this was a common, this was commonly um, um, held view in in mid 20th century New Testament scholarship. it's true, as I said before, that Luke's journey narrative lacks the geographical markers that would have been common to that genre. But as we've seen before, that's really not the point of the narrative. Uh, it's mm-hmm. about Jesus teaching uh, uh, both his disciples and the Jewish leaders about what it means to be faithful in their response to God. Now, I think another another thing we also have to remember about this is that the borders in this region had been in a state of flux for years, mm-hmm. and really, we should probably say centuries. Right. Uh, this, you know, territory in this region changed hands from ro- one ruling power to another, even from the beginning of the Jewish occupation, mm-hmm. right. centuries before Christ. So, you, you know, you can't just flip to the map section of a study Bible and point to a boundary that would have been obvious in Jesus' right. day. And so I think we're meant to understand that the village Jesus entered was in this buffer right. zone. Uh, at the very least, I think we have to say that the precise location of the village was really kind of irrelevant to the story. For what it's worth, um, as a as a someone who taught secular history <clears throat> for so many years, the the whole Jewish kingdom is really an afterthought. And mm. and frankly, had it not been for uh, Judaism and Christianity, that this would not have even been much of a discussion in far as geography. This is such a small group right. of people, right. and so we tend to get very caught up because we centralize in this area for our studies here, mm-hmm. but realizing that in the larger scheme of things, this is 
this is almost irrelevant. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I will mention as well as a side note that there's something of a translation problem here because the Greek says dia mesan samarayas kai galalayas, which would be translated. Mm. I mean, I guess, uh, you know, that's the question is how do you translate it? Because the preposition dia normally mm -hmm. occurs with the um, genitive case, not the accusative case. Mm -hmm. uh, when it's talking about location. Mm -hmm. And so um, there have been several corrections in the manuscript tradition and the English Bible tradition is all over the place. Um, Interesting. Um, some of the older translations have through the midst of mm -hmm. because that's what the Greek majority text that was around in that time had. Uh, it had uh, dia, um, dia mesu. Um, uh, Samarias kai galalias through the midst of literally, but more recent translations um, include between or along the borders of or along the border between, or my favorite one is is Tom Wright's New Testament for everyone along the borderlands between. I think that reflects mm. the historical re reality accurately. I mean, even even if you look at the hundred or so years before Jesus, the the boundaries of who, you know, what what was whose territory in terms of kingdoms f shifted right. so much yep. in that yeah. in that space of time. So I, I we you know, we think of our country, we think of we think of, you know, geography in terms of lines on a map. Right. And that would not have existed. Right. Exactly. 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 But I think that's important to point out because we forget that because mm -hmm. as you said because of our own our own kind of assumptions about how boundaries work. I, I remember I remember growing up and I had this very kind of static understanding of how the world was and the nations. And, and when I started to learn that even while in my lifetime, that these were not necessarily just permanent Why? facts. Well, I mean, just it, in, in yeah. recent years, Yugoslavia is exactly. no longer a country. You know, exactly. Czechoslovakia is no longer a country. But in my young <clears throat> life, I didn't that that was a fact that was a, it was a stated thing and so i think we still tend to think that way a mm -hmm. little bit today mm -hmm. even even if we recognize it differently the the lines that go in and it, the whole name like of yugoslavia is a whole a group of slavs put together and and well, so they all had individual who, who who really shouldn't have been put together absolutely in the first place. exactly yeah. so, <laughs> so um anyway that's a very long way to get to we should make such a big deal about this yeah yeah <laughs> I mean, really, it's it's you know it's in this borderland between Samaria and yep. Galilee that was that was in flux pretty much forever. Right, right. Now it's interesting also that Luke's description of Jesus' final Jerus journey to Jerusalem now sounds more like a true travel narrative in that the account mentions places and there is quite a lot of movement. Mm -hmm. Um, and we may recall that Matthew and Mark suggest that Jesus made his final journey to Jerusalem by going, literally, Mark says, to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. But when we, when we talked about that particular passage, we saw that the contemporary English Bible probably trans translates it better, beyond the Jordan and into the region of mm. Judea, which, in other words, this was the traditional route that Jewish right. pilgrims to Jerusalem took, intentionally avoiding Samaritan territory. Luke's gospel is vague about the specific route Jesus took, but it could be that traveling in these borderlands implies that he was taking that traditional mm, route. Okay. And so what happens next? Well, next Luke tells us that as he entered a village, 10 men who were lepers approached him. And this is the most literal translation of the Greek text. Uh, They're literally called leproi or lepers. Mm -hmm. But the... 
The recently released new RSV updated edition translates it 10 men with a skin disease. And this accurately reflects the the fact that the term leprosy was used in the Bible for a variety of skin Mm -hmm. diseases, not all of which were Hansen's disease, which we know as leprosy today. But nevertheless, I mean, this is, this is kind of the way the Bible treats leprosy and especially the Hebrew Bible. Um, uh, Leprosy stood for a variety of skin diseases that rendered a person unclean. Uh, And you, and Leviticus 13 goes into great detail about the identification of such diseases. Mm -hmm. And then Leviticus 14 goes into equal detail about how to, how to be purified. Right, right. So that these skin diseases affected their ability to worship and to take part in the life of the community probably is more important in the Bible than the precise identification of the disease. Right, right, right. And I think most people understand that today. Mm. But it's important to point out because since we still have a disease we call leprosy, um, people tend to either think, potentially think that, oh, it's just that one disease, um, which they didn't have that kind of scientific ability to tell those differences. Right. So, yeah, just, as you said, unclean. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, because these men would have been considered unclean, they would have been isolated from community life. And this may be reflected in the fact that they were outside Mm. the village when they called out to Jesus. Now this is obscured by the typical English translation as he entered the village. Uh, The Greek construction is a genitive absolute, um, which uh, is clearly temporal and in the present tense, which could very well be translated as he was entering. And there are several uh, tra- recent translations that render it that way. Um, and I think, I think that's probably better because the idea is as he was entering the village, he was still outside the village when, when, mm-hmm. these, when he came sure. upon these, these men. That makes sense. Um, it would seem that these men had formed their own kind of band to survive, mm-hmm. but as Luke indicates, they kept their distance. And I think it's interesting that instead of crying out unclean, as the Torah mm-hmm. prescribes, uh, these men cried out, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Well, and interesting, they clearly recognize that's Jesus. Right, mm-hmm. and that's that's an interesting thing. How did they recognize that it was Jesus? Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, obviously, I think we could say that in Luke's gospel, by this point, he's, he's taking for granted that Jesus was pretty well known throughout uh, this, right. this, the whole region. Now, here we encounter again the word epistata, uh, or master, which we learned earlier is one of the ways that the disciples addressed Jesus in Luke's gospel. Uh, This word only occurs in Luke's gospel. And in Luke's gospel, it's not strictly speaking a synonym for kurios, which implies perhaps a full-formed faith on the part of the person Mm -hmm. addressing Jesus. But again, the fact that only the disciples use this term for Jesus, I think implies that epistata is a term of respect, if not perhaps an implicit acknowledgement of Jesus' authority to or power to cure mm. them. So it's it's not quite sir or or mister, but it's also not it's it's somewhere in between there and hmm. lord. Interesting. You know? yeah. 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 All right. And so um going on, they um they ask uh, for healing. Yes, they do. But but in, in but in fact, their request for healing is framed in an unusual way, we might think. They don't ask for healing, but rather they ask for mercy. Ah. Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. And I think that's an interesting point because, 
as I mentioned, they ask for healing, but that's not actually what they ask for. And that's an mm-hmm. important space. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um, and one of the things we see when we, when we kind of do some concordance work is that the cry have mercy is used occasionally in, in the gospels by individuals seeking healing. So, uh, you know, that Jesus understood this is indicated by his response. Clearly. I mean, when he said, when he saw them, he said to them, go and show yourselves to the priests. Well, the only reason they would go and show themselves to the priest was to be declared clean and to go through the ritual cleansing process that Leviticus 14 spells out. Mm -hmm. So, uh, um, you know, the, the, that that's apparently what Jesus had in mind when he said, go and show yourselves to the priests. Mm-hmm. Now, I find it interesting that Jesus doesn't do anything really that we would associate with healing here. He doesn't touch them. And we, we already have the, the earlier episode where Jesus healed a leper in Luke 5, 13. Mm-hmm. And he, it says he touched him and healed him. And in some of the other healings of Jesus, you know, there's certain things that Jesus does. Right, he right, speaks right. words or he, he touches them or something happens. But here, he, he, he didn't even pronounce right. that they were healed. Exactly. He just said, go and show yourselves to the priests. And so Luke then adds the note that as they went, they were made clean in verse 14. Mm-hmm. Now, I think we're meant to recall Jesus' inaugural preaching at Nazareth. Nazareth, where after the crowds at the synagogue expressed their admiration for him when he told them that the year of the Lord's favor was mm-hmm. being fulfilled, Jesus perhaps deliberately provoked them by implying that the Lord's favor would be for outsiders, mm-hmm. citing the story of Elijah and the widow of Zarephath, mm-hmm. and citing the story of Elisha and the prophet cleansing them and the Syrian general. In both cases, he says, there were many widows in Israel in the time of Elijah, mm-hmm. but Elijah was only sent to the widow, the one in Zarephath. And there were many right. lepers in, in Israel in the time of Elisha, but Elisha was not sent to right. them. He was sent only to Naaman the Syrian. And, and, and the connection, I think, between this passage and that one is strengthened by the idea that, that, the, the, that Elisha also cleansed Naaman by sending him on his way. Yes. You know, basically yes. with the instructions to bathe in the Jordan That's River. right. That's right. So Mm -hmm. I would agree with Joel Green that in this section of the travel narrative, as Jesus is moving toward Jerusalem, Luke begins to draw in some of the major themes of the gospel, some of some of them even more controversial themes. Mm -hmm. And here the idea is that God's blessings are not limited to and perhaps not even necessarily given to the quote unquote chosen people. So obviously that would have been very controversial. Very. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So moving on. So even though Jesus had instructed the men to show themselves to the priests, Luke tells us that one of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back, praising God with a loud voice. And, you know, praising God was a common response to healing among Mm -hmm. those who were exemplars of faith in, in Luke's gospel. Furthermore, Luke tells us that the man returned to express his praise to God at the feet of Jesus. In verse 16, Mm -hmm. he said, he, uh, Luke says he prostrated himself at Jesus' feet and thanked him. Mm-hmm. Now, here I would say that while the, the other nine men experienced healing, verse 14 mm-hmm. says that. Right. As, as they right. went, they were made clean. This man found something more. He saw that he was healed. Mm-hmm. And is this perhaps a, an allusion to the fact that Jesus' ministry was meant to bring recovery of sight? 
mm-hmm. in, in Luke 4, 18. He saw that he was healed, and he returned to Jesus to offer praise to God. And so the implication here is that he recognized that the blessings of God's kingdom were being mediated by Jesus. And perhaps even more than that, he recognized that it was entirely appropriate to offer praise to God at the feet of Jesus. Mm-hmm. This, was, this was faith. This was the kind of faith that Jesus was looking for um, you know, in the gospel. And, and I think it's significant that this man is the one who shows this. Yeah, faith. because it's kind of back to that idea of the Samaritan outsider, right. you know, is the one that is showing the faith, the one who is least supposedly likely. least likely, right, <laughs> yeah. is, is the assumption is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But however, Luke saves that punchline mm-hmm. uh, as a narrative aside um, for the end, and it almost seems like an afterthought when he finally says, and he was a Samaritan. Mm-hmm. I think this is intentional because it's almost like Luke is luring his audience in Right, right. And they're identifying, you know, maybe it, uh, Jewish Christians or J- Jewish readers of the gospel would have, would have identified with him and said, oh, yes, of course. Well, that's what he should have done. But then when it says he was a Samaritan, it would have been like, whoa, you know, yep. you can't identify with a Samaritan because they're the hated Samaritans. Right, they're the right. unclean Samaritan. They're the, they're the awful Samaritans. Mm-hmm. But, and, and Samaritans were despised and hated not only because of their mixed heritage, but also because they had their own temple and their own version of the Torah. Mm-hmm. So, you know, the, it's almost as if Jesus were repeating the scene of confrontation with the synagogue at Nazareth. Yeah. When he asks the question that seems like an intentional provocation, were not ten made clean? So where are the other nine? Did none of them return to give glory to God except this foreigner? And again, as Jesus nears Jerusalem, it seems like Luke's travel narrative is returning to the central themes of the gospel. And here it's the idea that a foreigner, and the word is alogenes, someone born somewhere else, basically, who shows what it means to respond to Jesus with the faith that leads to Mm -hmm. the faithful action of returning to give glory to God. Mm-hmm. But it's interesting here, I think, that there's no indication of an audience to whom Jesus addressed this question in the narrative itself. It doesn't say Jesus said to the disciples right, right. or Jesus turned to the crowd or anything like that. It just says, you know, that Jesus said, we're not the ten made clean. Did none of them return to give glory right. to God except this foreigner? So it, it almost leaves it open-ended mm-hmm. so that it, this question can address all of Luke's subsequent audiences directly. I think it's more powerful that way. It is. I really do. It mm-hmm. is. And we'll see that that's kind of a strategy in Luke and Acts, that mm-hmm. Luke does that, I think, on occasion, intentionally. Yeah, I, I do too. Yeah. I, I, you know, as we've, as we've studied Luke throughout, I, I'm, I'm impressed by the variety of literary techniques mm-hmm. used. Narrative and, strategies. And yeah. strategies. Sometimes yeah. he addresses the disciples. Sometimes he addresses the Pharisees. Sometimes it's a it's 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 a simple story that is obvious, you know, we don't even need to preach because oh yes. And sometimes it's thought provoking or ironical. And mm-hmm. so there's this whole variety of, yep. of, of things that are uses and I think I think sometimes that frustrates us that are used to writing like all of our history exams. Not that this happens with a certain structure, you know, mm-hmm. you have your point, your three points, your conclusion. But think about how we wouldn't be caught off guard mm-hmm. as we're reading. Think about how we wouldn't cause us to think about it 
and jump into it with the detail that we do. Which seems so. to be precisely the point of Luke's I, I, gospel. Ex- he's he's exactly. challenging the status quo. He's challenging conventional norms. He's exactly. challenging prevailing notions, especially the idea here that, well, when God's kingdom comes, it's going to be primarily for the chosen people. And yeah. Not, and that's not the case in, in Luke's right, gospel. Right, right. <laughs> uh, so, uh, moving on. Yeah. So, Jesus himself declares that this Samaritan leper was an example of the kind of faith he had been working so hard along the journey to Jerusalem to encourage his disciples and the Jewish religious leaders to embrace. Um, in verse 19, it says, Then he said to him, go, Get up and go on your way. Your faith has made you well. That's the new RSV mm-hmm. translation. Now, we have encountered this phrase, Hey, pistisu seso can say, Your faith has made you well or saved you before. And we've seen there, there can be kind of a dual nuance there. But I think here, the spiritual aspect of salvation must be highlighted because Jesus himself observed, we're not the 10 made clean. Mm-hmm. So all the other nine were made well. They didn't return and right. give glory to God. And that is what provoked the, this particular pronouncement by Jesus, your faith has saved, saved you. you. I think mm-hmm. we have to translate it that way. Your faith has saved you. Mm-hmm. And in fact, um, although the majority of English translations have something similar to the new RSV, your faith has made you well, um, the Geneva Bible has, oh. thy faith hath saved thee. And the New American Bible, Revised Edition, which is a Catholic translation, and um, Tom Wright's New Testament for Everyone has, Your Faith Has Saved You. Mm. And I think that's the way we should read it this mm-hmm. year, mm-hmm. because this is the point. Um, <clears throat> you know, all of the men were made well. Right. But only and this one was saved. saved. Yeah. And this is something Calvin's going to pick up mm-hmm. on as well. So I find it I interesting, so. particularly the Geneva Bible then yes. um, has that in there. Yes. So, um, yes. Interesting, and obviously he would have been very familiar with that particular translative choice. So, Mm -hmm, yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, cool. Now, this man was saved because he saw or his eyes were opened to the fact that God had blessed him with the mercy of healing through Jesus. I think that's key here Mm. in Luke's gospel, in the context of Luke's gospel. And so he returned to Jesus with praise, humble worship, and thanks, all of which in Luke's gospel make up what faith slash faithfulness looked like. And I think Mm -hmm. it's something that we need to, we're going to be getting into here. And that is that faith expresses itself in faithful action in, in, in that's what Jesus is looking for. Mm -hmm. Uh, We've seen this. I mean, I think we could, we could draw this as an inference from much of what we've seen already in the travel narrative, that faith expresses itself in faithful action. Yeah. Yeah. And, and now it really begins to, to, to crystallize and just begins to, to, to become a, a clearer theme in Luke's gospel. Right, right. So then one of the themes we're going to see in this final section of the journey to Jerusalem, and not just today, but in the coming narratives that we're going to be looking at, is the fact that, as in the rest of Luke's gospel, it is precisely the quote-unquote little ones, the outsiders and outcasts, not the disciples and not the Jewish religious leaders, who respond to Jesus with mm-hmm. authentic faith that is demonstrated in faithful action. Here, this Samaritan leper. Next week, we're going to see it is a widow. The week after that, a tax collector. The infants and children who approach him. And later on, a sinner, Zacchaeus. Um, mm-hmm. These are the ones who respond to Jesus with authentic faith 
that is demonstrated in faithful action. And it's, it's I think, yeah. you know, it, Luke doesn't draw attention to it as much as, as Mark and Matthew do the, the, the lack of understanding of, of, of his own disciples. Right. But I, there's it's an, there. there's an implicit, it's definitely there. you know, that mm-hmm. th- these are the people, the very ones that Jesus, you know, d- Jesus' own disciples are trying to prevent the infants and children from bothering Jesus. Right. You know, they're, they're, they're standing in the way of the little ones coming to right. him. Right. And, and, and that, that in and of itself speaks volumes. I, I, absolutely. <clears throat> absolutely. Yeah. But it is the little ones. It is the outsiders. It is the unlikely who are the ones who show faith and faithfulness. I may be going too far here, but as you're talking about this, I'm thinking about Luke's audience mm-hmm. and wondering, does this suggest something about his audience that he, he doesn't want to offend them initially with this kind of upfront of stupid disciples like my college students would say, mm-hmm. but rather is is pulling them in with, oh, mm-hmm. they, 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 sh- they should have, re- have responded this way, that this was wrong. And, and so the maybe pulls them in differently instead of kind of this off, yeah. almost offensive approach. His, his strategy is not as obvious as, as Mark right, and Matthew's right. is on that score. Exactly. And and does it, does it reflect the audience, do you suppose? I'm, I, think it, I, think it reflects, I think it reflects human nature when it comes to religion myself. Well, because so I not think, just specifically an audience, but, but the entirety of, of folks. Because I think it's still true today. I, I agree. You know, when, when, when someone uh, devotes themselves to the practice of faith, you know, yep. we, we, we tend to always see ourselves as on the inside. And Luke is is turning all those insider outsider categories all on their heads and and upending all kinds of those kinds those notions, and um, um, I think that's something we're going to continue to see as we as we look at some of the upcoming passages in yeah. Luke's gospel. I do too. All right. Well, yeah. thank you, Alan. Thank you. Hi, friends, we're back, and we're going to uh, take a look at what the Reformers had to say about this. And I think we're going to hear some things that are familiar and some things that might <laughs> seem a bit uh, surprising. So yeah. um, lead us through that, Christy. Sure. So I found, um, and I, I was looking at the Reformation commentaries um, as well as Calvin's full commentary as I was looking at the passages. And so I, I basically saw two different interpretations. The main one that the reformers emphasized that the healing of the 10 was really about where faith was in the process. And of course, faith is the centerpiece of the reformation. Um, and they noted that, and this is a quote from Luther, Jesus quote, rouses them to believe in him. Um, and he implies that uh, there is something about Jesus. And I think that's true. And I think it's this idea that they, that's how they recognized him, is that there's something about him. Mm-hmm. And they knew that in seeing this Jesus, that, they, that the faith kind of emanated from it. Um, and so both Luther and Calvin emphasize what Jesus will do in us if we have true faith. Um, and Luther spends a bit of time emphasizing that this is something done by their faith rather than because Jesus wanted to heal them. Mm. Um, and uh, Luther emphasizes that Jesus simply sent them to the priest. So he's making this thing of, look, some of the same observations that we had before um, didn't 
it, it wasn't about this whole required no asking. Your face has already got already achieved and gained and gained your um, your healing um, uh, before you even began to ask. So this idea that Jesus and God knows what we need before we mm-hmm. have it, and this faith has achieved this for us, if you will. Um, you were already clean before me just as you began to hope for such a thing from me. It is no longer necessary to ask. Just go and show your cleanliness to the priests as I consider you and as you believe, so you are and should become, mm. quote. Yeah. Um, and so for, Leith, for Luther, it's, it's, the, it's the faith. It's all powerful and, and Calvin as well. Now this- I, you know, I, I, I have to say I, 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 I like some of the things that Luther is saying about faith here, but I, I think he's ascribing more faith to the nine who didn't return than I would be comfortable doing because, you know, it's the one who returned whom Jesus right. said your faith is, has right. saved you. And, 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 and Luther, now Calvin, and I'll talk a little bit more about Calvin later, Calvin defines them a little bit differently. Um, but Luther recognizes the faith in, in all of them, mm-hmm. which is yeah. interesting. Calvin is going to, and I'll, as I said, say more later, but Calvin's going to explain that there is faith, but it's, it's, it's incomplete. Mm. It's, it's this kind mm. of, it's kind of this when praying, when, <laughs> uh, praying when we're um, being shot at, you know, this kind of, it's there, but it's not practice, it's not mm-hmm. complete, it's not filled. But well, yet- I mean, you wonder, because this is a strange healing story in the Gospel of Luke, you know, for, for a number of reasons, and one of them is, you know, 10 men are healed, one returns, and Jesus pronounces, your faith has saved you, what about the other nine? <laughs> you know, exactly. we're really kind of we don't really know anything about them exactly. other than that they just they went on their way. They went on their way. <laughs> yeah. The second the second piece which I thought was interesting is an allegorical approach suggesting that the leprosy is a metaphor for all sin. <laughs> and this is from Johannes Brenz and he says like the lepers are cast out of society so too are sinners are cast out of heaven because of sin. But Jesus comes to give satisfaction for our sins and this cleanses us to enter the kingdom. So it's this mm. as I said it's an allegorical approach. But yeah. I I could see that particularly in this time period mm-hmm. um how, how they got to that place certainly right? reflects yeah views of the time of the time yeah. right right i don't think well i don't know Does, has anyone tried this today in t- modern commentaries i that i, I don't think any serious new testament scholar would would try to allegorize this so don't use that <laughs> <laughs> well but, and and it's pretty harsh to say that you know we're like lepers cast we're like lepers cast out of heaven because of our sin you know i mean there's certain there is a certain uh, element in contemporary Christianity whom, that might resonate with that, but I'm not sure in the PCUSA that would go over too That's well. That's not going to go over very well. All right. <laughs> and, and because it's not consistent with our theology. Right, right, exactly. So, and then the second part of this is um, the return of the Samaritan, right? So there's the healing is, is kind of the one piece, and then um, the, the, the return of the Samaritan, a second piece. And there's a wide range of um, agreement and disagreement here. They all agree that we are called to give thanks for God's goodness and that the Samaritan, of course, was the one to do this. And that was a good example of what we should do. Um, But Brenz, for example, claims that it's um, also a commentary on the other nine, presumably Jews who did not give thanks. And um, I personally think 
that it reflects the existing anti-Semitism um, during the period. Um, well, and, you know, I mean, like I said, we don't really know what happened to the other nine. And it's almost tempting to think that somehow they're, the fact that they didn't return you know, is 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 it, sort of seen in a bit of a negative light, but mm-hmm. I, I I don't think that's the point. I think the point is to focus on the role of the Samaritan, and it was a it was a Samaritan, an unlike a Samaritan leper, doubly right. unlikely. You know, crossing couple of, a couple of right. boundaries here, who who comes back and expresses faith, you know, at right. Jesus' feet. Well, and 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 it's it's almost like <laughs> it goes through. Well, gosh, they uh, they were insulting to Jesus by not coming back. They were rude. They yeah. were, and I don't think Jesus' pure pure grace had anything to do with that yeah. kind of judgment. But well, it's Luke, rather Luke doesn't really even bring any of that out. Mm-mm. His focus is on is on the Samaritan. I think yeah, I think that's stuff we we kind of draw into mm-hmm. it. We read into it. Implications. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now I'm going to digress here because I want to remind folks about the anti-Semitism of the 16th century, and we have talked about it before. Um, but we remember that at least many of the Jews are, are, have been kicked out of Europe by this time. But there are pockets in free cities. It, it's an, an imperfect kind of thing. In fact, um, I, I've been reading a book by Thomas Kaufman. It's 2017. Um, uh, Luther's Jews and a Journey to Antisemitism, um, put out by Oxford Press. And what's interesting about this is that he tells us, look, even in Eisleben, we're Luther grew up, there was a, a small group of about 30 Jews that lived there. So it's not, it's not some kind of systematic thing mm-hmm. like in a modern age, like, you know, and we're trying to put it in the context of Nazi Germany and that all Jews Holocaust, were ghettoized, yeah. all these things. And they're moving in and out of society. So you see cities with major, um, major groups of, of, of Jews um, and, and large ghettos. And in fact, the first ghetto was established in Venice in 1516. And mm. we're all familiar with the ghetto concept from mm. World War II. But um, there were some cities like that. Prague is huge, has a huge ghetto, but others um, don't have much at all or, or, or just pockets of, of where Jews tend to live, but not necessarily all gathered together. So it did kind of vary um, on, on how this worked. But it, it does continue that this anti-Semitism is there, and there's definitely an identity piece between who is Jewish and who is not. And I think you have to go back a little bit to the high Middle Ages when you do have, um, you know, we always think in terms of, of Jewish persecution by Christians, but you also have kind of a, a heightening of persecuting attitudes of Jews towards towards Christians, mm. the opposite around. You get this kind of, uh, religious intoleration on both sides. Mm-hmm. And I think that's important. So Jews start in the high Middle Ages, many of them really identifying themselves and the behaviors as being specifically different. So where you might have seen a, a loosening before, you're tending to see these tightening of identities. Mm. Um, so you're going to see more and more Jews acting in very traditional Jewish ways, wearing traditional dress, uh, making sure they're eating kosher, not hiding amongst the population at all. So they're going to have set themselves aside too, um, which I think is important. What happens with the Reformation, though, which is interesting, is that Luther actually had a kind of um, positive view initially of the Jews, thinking, of course, they would automatically convert to the true faith. Um, 
And we see this in his early writings because... Paul, Paul says, you know, the full number of the Jews will be saved. <laughs> exactly. And he had the same attitude towards Roman Catholic Christians. As soon as they hear the true scripture and the true faith, they'll, they'll get on board. Um, but as Kaufman points out, this goes changes during the course of his life. And as he realizes that nobody's doing this, including Jews, he tends to kind of hop on to not only what he grew up with was this anti-Semitism that was kind of the popular assumption. I mean, in the Reformation, because of the study of the ancient languages of Greek and Hebrew, there was actually a lot of respect for Jewish yeah. scholars. Well, they were and they the were, only ones who knew Hebrew. They were the only <laughs> ones that knew it. So there's kind of this, well, that guy's okay, but, mm -hmm. oh, the, the general, those Jews, those 30 that live in Eisleben, that live weird and act weird, there's something wrong with them. Mm -hmm. So you kind of get this kind of, uh, shall I say, simple folk kind of attitude towards mm -hmm. Jews, these kind of simple assumptions well it sounds like a bit of a double standard you know these these jewish hebrew scholars were 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 respected because of their education but the others were right. were they you know they were despised because they were jews and so it's almost like a good jew bad jew kind of exactly thing. Yeah. and this is not if, if you've ever done a lot of holocaust studies this is not an atypical kind mm -hmm. of thing about how humans function you know and so there may be somebody that has a minority person that lives yeah. next door and joe is awesome but those folks down there right. that live they're they're don't don't associate yeah. with them so i think this is kind of a, a human um yep. human fear that that goes in um but anyway it, it attacks if you will it attacks luther it's part of luther is and, and at the end of his life he actually becomes quite um anti-Jewish in his writing. And he writes this letter actually to his wife um, about three weeks before he dies. And he, he has, they believe it's a heart attack. And, he, and I, I think you'll be horrified actually. It, it reads this. I felt my strength leave me just outside Eisleben. It was my own fault. But if you'd been there, you would have said that it was the fault of the Jews or of their God. For just outside Eisleben, we had to go through a village where a lot of Jews live, and perhaps it was they who blew on me so hard. Eisleben is a place of more than 50 Jews, and there is no doubt that as I passed through the village, I felt such a cold wind blow through the carriage onto my head, through my cap, that it seemed as if my brain would turn to ice. That's probably what made me feel dizzy. Mm. <laughs> So, so his health problems were because the Jews blew on him so hard. <laughs> oh, well, and they were blamed for all kinds of things. And, yeah. and this was a really uh, part of that era. It, it almost makes it hard to believe that Luther was an educated person, but of course, educated within the limits of right. scientific knowledge of that day. And we read this a lot in Luther as you read through his things. Sometimes you hear this this wonderfully, seemingly highly educated man doing very deep theology, and then you read this kind of, he said, what? Yeah. You know, um, the table talk, he's quite familiar with the table talk, and, you know, as the beer comes out, and as, and, mm. and some of the horrible things that he'll say and that, and he's, he's a character, and mm. um, uh, for sure, and he's obviously a man who is part of his day. Mm -hmm. He is... Um, a person of his time and he says these these well things. i mean the essential i mean essential to anti-semitism is the notion 
that Jewish people per se mm-hmm. are a threat. And, you know, it, it, it gives, exp- I mean, it gives rise to these kinds of just, mm-hmm. you know, <laughs> silly notions. Right. Even still today. Exactly. And, and exactly. you know, the idea that there's a Jewish cabal out there in the banking world that is that controls the world and things like that. Yeah. There are people in our country that, that believe that stuff still today. It, exactly. Exactly. And, and so it's not much. It's not much more um, enlightened than than Luther thinking that <laughs> he felt badly because the Jews blew hard on him. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. It's. Um, it, 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 anyway, it's. I, I want you to be aware of it um, as as you think about 16th century uh, stuff that you read or you come across, and 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 part of it's part of it's Luther specifically, but but I think it's deeper than that. I think it really tells you this age, and there's a lot of fear that's going on that that gets passed around, particularly in these kind of amongst common folks, and um, um, it it it. Uh, it it it's not different than the day, like Alan said, but I think it I think we want to purify sometimes these guys mm-hmm. too and take them Put out them of the context. Exactly. Yeah. And 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 um they did offer things to the faith, but it doesn't mean that they too right. weren't um Well, we and, see very much Luther's feet of clay here. Exactly. Yeah. So I want to move back now to Calvin and um and, and Brenz as well. Um and how they looked at the Jews, and they didn't—they didn't go into this kind of harsh Jewish criticism that that Luther has, is showing above. But they do condemn the inaction of the of the Jewish lepers as an insult to God, as if, if you will, kind of a crime that this was not was expected. And Calvin um, really sees this as a commentary on the lack of piety of these Jewish uh, lepers. Um, and what is interesting, though, is that he goes on to suggest that these these Jewish lepers had at least that flame of faith to believe. Um, it tends to rise, as he says, when we are in need and fade when we receive what we want. Sounds like he's, he's reading it through the lens of the uh, parable of the seed or parable of the sower because the, the seed on yes, rocky I ground the same you know, thing. sprouts up quickly and then withers away. Right. Yeah. But I do think, you know, and throughout the Institutes, you get bits and pieces of Calvin that suggest that we can we can know God, and, and maybe this is where this is coming from, that, that the Jews can be saved, that they, they know God, that um, there's ways that we, we know that God's presence is with us, mm-hmm. even um, even if we haven't heard the, the true scripture. And I right. think he's kind of going on with that idea here, too. Um, so for Calvin, it seems to be a recognition of Christ's call on our lives, but the presence of sin that still pulls us away from acting in the fullness of faith. Um, is, he is very much amazed at what faith will do. Mm, yeah. And then Calvin goes on and spends a little time interpreting whether or not the Samaritan went to the priests (laughs) first and then went back to Christ after being declared clean or whether he merely went partway and then went back, ran back to uh, Christ before the declaration of the priests. And I thought that was an interesting concern. Well, and, you know, to me, if you, uh, there doesn't seem to be anything in the text that suggests that he did that. I mean, I could see where where Calvin would would want to read something like this because Jesus told him to do that, right? Right. And right. and so, in a sense, he would have been disobeying Jesus by coming back and not right. showing himself to the priest. But you know, um, 
Uh, yeah, I mean, that that's just the way the, the text reads in, well, in Luke. Apparently, there was some discussion about this amongst mm-hmm. um, these Reformation scholars because he's like, look, some are siding with it this way. And so he's kind of wanting to clarify where his position is. And it, I do find that it is interesting the things that they'll get caught up on. Um, so what was Calvin's position on this? Calvin sides um, with the first and claimed um, the first situation is that he went and he showed himself to the priests oh, yeah. and then he came back. Huh. Um, and uh, he does claim that it juxtaposes the Jews um, with the Samaritan and um, places on us the expectation of gratitude. The Jews probably, um, as I said, alluding to this anti-Semitism of the era, he accused of, quote, swallowing up God's favors without any feeling of piety. Mm, so these Jewish lepers, yeah. Yeah, yeah, these Jewish lepers. Well, and, and, and you know, the other, the other challenge here is to whom would this Samaritan have presented himself? Because, uh, you know, he was a Samaritan. Right. Is, is he going to go to the temple in Jerusalem and, and present himself to the Jewish priest? I mean, they would have seen him as despised and rejected and outcast. Right, um, right. Is he supposed to go to the temple the temple on Mount Gerizim in some in Samaria, you know, it's, well, yeah. Where's he supposed to go? Asking those questions too, and I'm wondering in a leper colony of ten guys who are completely um, abandoned, if and that anyone would have been able to look at them and tell that one's a Samaritan or mm-hmm. not. I mean, honestly, right. I mean, right. I'm I'm visualizing this, but I I don't know that they would have seen them. I, 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 again, I can understand why the Reformed scholars might have gotten caught up with this because Jesus tells them to do this. But right. in, in Luke's gospel, that's not the point. The point is right. he comes back and out of, he right. responds in faith. Well, he's the, and he's the only one in Luke's gospel that responds in faith. Another ex- explanation here in the commentaries is that the, the Jewish lepers were bound to the law in seeking the priests, while the Samaritan understood <laughs> his true fal- salvation was in Christ. So, so because he's, he's, he's sort of a semi-Gentile, he's free from yes, the law and he yes, can respond yes, in faith, yes. but the Jews are bound to the law. Yes, yeah, yeah. yes. Um, and one commentator actually claims that the nine who did not return to give thanks actually, quote, abandoned their faith. Uh. And wow. this is an example for us that we should learn from it and be thankful. They're reading an awful lot into, into this passage that's not really there. But guess where Alvin ends up? Listen on, everybody. Ultimately, Calvin makes the distinction between being cured, which is ultimately what happened to the Jews, and being saved is what, which what, is what happened to the Samaritan. Which, yeah, no problem there. That's exactly what it seems to say. Yeah. Yes, I love, I love that. I love it when we end up with Calvin. Okay. Well, I, as I say, I like to say, I love it when, when Calvin agrees with me. Yes, yes. All right. So um, anyway, uh, just in one more little aside is that one of the more interesting things I found is that um, from Calvin, who claims that the Roman Catholic Church uses this passage to support the practice of confession. <laughs> what returning to the priest <laughs> exactly and so christ sent the lepers to the priests and of course calvin is highly critical of this for in the roman catholic tradition the priests would declare to the penitent that they are clean or, or forgiven but this isn't what goes on at all no. and the and the priests merely attest to the fact that they are already forgiven yeah it's like it's like they're the they're the resident health inspectors yep so calvin <laughs> is saying look they're undermining the whole point of the passage and um 
Uh-huh. Oh, goodness. Yeah. But I thought that was a really bizarre taking out of context kind yeah. of things that they yeah. go to the, that that's would be the role of a, a priest. So, mm-hmm. but anyway, that's a funny little aside. And I didn't find the actual Roman Catholic quote of that. I'm going with what Calvin says that the Roman Catholics are using this for. Although I have no reason to doubt Calvin right. there. So, um, it's just interesting. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Thanks. thanks, Christy. Hi, everyone. We are back, and we just wanted to really think about this kind of idea between the nine and the and the one, and this idea of who is in the church and how we tend to look at people who are outside the church and really maybe part of what um, Jesus was trying to get us to identify with in this passage. So Alan, why don't you uh, take it away here? Yeah, thanks. You know, the, the, I mean, part of the foundation for this passage is the tension between the Jewish people and the Samaritans. And I mean, there was an antipathy. It was a mutual antipathy that they, that they held towards each other. And of course, really, the Jewish people had this, you know, notion that they were the chosen ones, and not only the Samaritans, but everybody else were not. And 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 we've talked several times about how Luke's gospel addresses sort of this notion of clean and unclean, which lay almost really at the heart of the Jewish um, religious practice, and and that I mean that's all about. You know who's in and who's out. Who mm-hmm. gets to approach God and who is who is kept out by definition because their presence would be defiling to God mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. and offensive to God. And um, you know, one of the things I think that in in that Luke is trying to do in his gospel is to show that in Jesus' ministry, the kingdom of God bursts all those boundaries. Mm-hmm. There, you know, those boundaries are no longer relevant. And in fact, it kind of goes even so far as to say that it's precisely the ones that you reject. It's precisely the ones that you consider to be outcast. It's precisely the ones you think are outside of God's grace who are the ones who are responding to Jesus with true faith. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that's significant in Luke's gospel, and, and it, con- it contributes, I think, to the sort of the breaking down of those conventional notions as we've talked about throughout this year of of who's clean, who's unclean, who's acceptable to God, who's not acceptable to God. Um, you know, uh, that's, you know, the kingdom of God just just kind of turns all that side upside, turns all of that upside down, and it, it really renders it irrelevant. Yeah, it does. And it's, it's, it's actually really beautiful when you think about what you really learn from this passage. I mean, additionally, I, I think there's this idea that this person who would be outside of who would be saved is saved right mm-hmm. i mean how we might think of as being an insider and um I, I i think i think this rings true for how many of our young people feel right now mm-hmm. and and how they have become alienated from the church because they no longer feel like they're insiders they're they're questioning their faith they're being young people doing experimenting with whatever and so they see themselves um as outside and they don't see themselves as worthy sometimes of worthy of god's love or they don't see that they see the people in the church they've told me this as being these perfect examples of lead people that lead exemplary lives and how they've fallen short of that expectation 
not realizing that everyone in there has had some kind of experience um, that that may have put them in the same space. Well, and you know, the, there is this kind of dynamic, I think, with faith communities that once you begin to be a part of a faith community, uh, you know, it's almost just human nature that, you know, you see yourself as an insider, you mm-hmm. identify with the heroes in, of the faith in the Bible, and, you know, you tend to kind of look down on the ones who are seemingly the bad guys, you right. know, like the Pharisees or the Jewish religious leaders. And yet, you know, in doing so, you know, it becomes very easy for us to replicate the very behavior that Jesus was was right. <laughs> criticizing those Jewish religious leaders for in terms of, you know, our our judgmental attitudes being an obstacle to the the least of these or the little ones, right. as Luke would call them. Oh, I agree. Coming to faith. I agree. And I think there's this tendency, um, you know, when you're when you're at the church and you tend to you see the people that are doing the hard work of the church and you're doing, and then it's when people that seem more outside, it doesn't, you tend to not give them as much attention. And, and, and I think, I think what's important to think about is when someone enters the doors is that they are at least in that moment, part of the community. Absolutely. And um, they are just as, as, as relevant um to um to jesus as as the next guy that may have been serving the church every day well and you know i I think again it's human nature that part of what happens is the people who serve the church the most sometimes they sort of have this notion that you know i deserve Mm -hmm. more of a say in what happens around here because of all that i've done for the sake of this church right and I think, I think young people, whether they're adolescents or whether they're 20s and 30s, you know, I think they pick up on that kind of um, just almost uh, condescending attitude very quickly. Oh, absolutely. And it turns them completely off. Absolutely. And one of the things, I work with a lot of young adults, and so um, I try to ask them specifically to be in roles where they they will have um, well they'll, they'll have some some leadership yeah and so it might be like acting as a liturgist or it might be in being a deacon and there's this tendency to think well we should just ask the same people mm-hmm. and you you may be surprised how people step up to the plate when they're given the responsibility sure. to be in a space and I mean you don't you probably don't just ask everyone right away or, and you probably make sure you have a group of people that have served the church a lot along with new people, but to continue to cycle the same people through your session and your, and your deacons and your liturgists and your ushers, um, and not ask new people to step up. uh, That's partly why the church doesn't grow. I mean, Mm -hmm. and, um, and, uh, so I asked a 30 year old to be my liturgist the other day and she was wonderful. And I could tell she felt, so honored to be asked, mm. and um, um, I've 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 put a couple of young adults on deacons, and it's it's fun to to watch. Um, I, I could tell when they started, they felt like they were well insignificant to the older people 
there, but then all of a sudden they're realizing, I, wait, I have some agency here. I am a deacon mm-hmm. of this congregation. And so mm-hmm. um, it's pretty, it's, it could be pretty empowering. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, one of the one of the observations I try to make, and I've made many times, I don't know that how well it sinks in, is that, you know, more often than not, uh, our churches are in the situation they're in, not despite all that they're doing, but precisely because of what they're doing. Mm-hmm. And it takes, you know, thinking about, okay, how do we look at this differently? How do we go about this differently in order to address some of those problems? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, it, to me, I love, I, I, this is one of the things I love about Luke's gospel, and that is that it's the least likely people who are the exemplars of what it means to have faith right. in Jesus, to right. respond with faith in Jesus, but then also to what it looks like to be faithful, you know, in right. terms of how you respond. And, and, and it's, it's almost as if yeah, I think about, I, I, I almost empathize with Jesus because, you know, we Luke has spent all these chapters, re, you know, re, recounting to us all this work that Jesus has done, right. trying to cultivate faith in the disciples and in the Jewish religious leaders as well. And it's like all been for naught, you know, mm-hmm. and it's the people that, that just kind of happened to show up and he hasn't even really interacted with them much. They're the ones who almost out of the blue respond with the kind of faith that he's been trying to teach Mm -hmm. the disciples Mm -hmm. to, to embrace. Now, of course we know that eventually the disciples will embrace that faith. Right. Uh, Right. um, Right. You know, I think we run into that a lot. Uh, You know, we try to be intentional about our faith formation, whether it's with, confirmation class or young adults or whether it's uh, for me i can i do i do faith formation every month with my session you know right and they don't know that that's what i'm doing but that's that's what i'm doing and um you know uh i think it's part of our ongoing calling to do that and yet it can feel like you know it can feel like you know we're sowing a lot of seeds that are falling on barren soil you know that doesn't produce much fruit right and, um, you know, um, I, I just I just love the fact that in Luke's gospel, it's the outsiders, it's the least of these, it's the little ones, it's the it's the, you know, the the, the ones who would have been excluded, the ones who would have been looked down mm-hmm. on, who actually become the ones who show us what faith looks like. Right. And I, I think at this distance, it's hard for us to appreciate just how shocking, even provocative, confrontational that would have been in that day and time mm-hmm. because we're used to the stories. Right. So we're used to this story. The Samaritans, oh yeah, the Samaritans is the one who came back. We're used to this story. And the Samaritan, you know, the good Samaritan doesn't have the kind of shock value that it would have had in that day and time, nor does does it, you know, the, the, the fact that Luke says, and he was a Samaritan. I mean, you probably could have heard an audible gasp, you know, at that point in some audiences, right? (laughs) Right, right. Uh, And, um, um, but we don't respond that way anymore because we're we're so familiar with it. Exactly, exactly. And uh, um, I think we're also impacted just with the good Samaritan. When we hear that, Mm -hmm. when we hear that reference, we, we, oh, that's a good, we don't think of those differences, but you're right hearing it in time and and the way it's like almost a 
punchline at the end. It's 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 really dramatic. It would have come off as a kind of a gut punch to yeah. some of his some, uh, some I of agree. the people of that day. I agree because yeah. that kind of person can't do right. that. Right. And so, um, yeah, it's 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 fascinating. Well, and you know, this whole discussion, I just. I just think it's so important for us to 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 really listen to, um, both as 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 people walking in faith, right, um, and also as we're as we're pastors and we're we're looking at those folks that are walking into the church. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. Thanks, Thanks Christy. That's our podcast for today. If you heard something that was helpful to you, please subscribe to our podcast and tell your friends about us. It's our hope and prayer that our time together might bear fruit in your ministry as you build up the body of Christ. We hope you'll tune in next week. And in the meantime, let's keep serving each other as we together listen listen for for the the word. word.